a listener production. Howdy, you are listening to episode 106 of the Howie Games Part B featuring Mark Philippoussis. On we go. We're about to talk about Davis Cup, but now while you bring up surfing, I had this memory this morning of often with um, high-profile people, there's certain um, urban legends, almost myths, and this is a good opportunity to find out. No, well, I, I don't know what's coming, Howie. Well, well I, I don't know if you do because I remember going. I have to hear it every time they've got that event on. I've got to listen to the same story every time is and this, that story grows every single time. Well, is it about Bells? Because I, I went to Bells yeah, one day and I remember thinking, I never swear on this podcast, but I remember thinking, geez, that's too big for me. I've got to know my limitations. And I thought about going out. And I was that mad at myself later because I didn't because I looked at it and I wished it and I was really flat about it, seriously, for about a couple of months. And I remember someone saying, oh, Mark Philippus is out there. And I'm like, the tennis guru, he's like, yeah, he's out there surfing. And then I, a mate told me that he'd been out surfing and he had some story that you'd been washed down the beach and ended up in a cave or something. And now that I've got you here, Alulia, this is true. Let's, let's put it to rest. Well, if you remember that day, it was huge. That it enormous. Was, it was, and I was so undergone with my board and, and I've drove down from Melbourne. I'm not driving down from Melbourne, not paddling out, especially when it's pumping this much. You know what I mean? But at least you paddled but out. But you're not realising how big it is until you get out there. And I knew I was out of my element as soon as I paddled out. So I paddled out Bell's area near the rocks, right? Jumping Around on the, the right side of the rocks. Yep. And I remember duck diving through two ways and I'm like, shit, I'm like, it's, <laughs> I need to go in. It is too big. So I thought, and let me tell you what, what it was. It was a combination <laughs> of a couple of things. It was the size was big, right? But it was more about there was a huge, huge rip. Sweep. Sweeping down all the way to Juck, all the way to Torquay. And it was strong. Like if you, it was, I, you would have to paddle good momentum of paddling to stay in the same spot, like like proper paddling to stay in the same Like if you just did this, you were drifting. And if you stood in the same place for 10 seconds, you were gone 20 metres, 30 metres. <laughs> it was that bad. <laughs> and I didn't know over the years this would happen. And there were very good surfers that I would hear that would just get swept down and they would go out down further and Jane Juck or come out of Jane Juck and they would just let it do that and not to fight it. I didn't know. I never asked or... And I rushed out and I knew I shouldn't be out there. I'm on a 610 board. I'm six foot five or 610. I should have been like on an 80. It was, you know what I mean? That day was huge. You needed the big rhino chaser. Oh my God. And then I knew I'm like, and I, as soon as I duck dive twice, I'm like, oh, sh-, and I'm waiting out there. I'm like, oh, this is crazy. I'm like, you know what? Oh, third thing. And it was super high tide. Like normally you could, you would take one on, on the stomach into the reef and get, get in the staircase. It was going, there was no reef. Like it was so high tide. You had to time it perfectly to get onto the staircase. Like you couldn't. It was It was like way, the reef was completely gone. It was super high tide. So there's three <laughs> bad things, like a bad combination that I learned really bad. So I'm like, oh, you know what? I'm just going to take one in. I'll take a smaller one in and I'll on the thing. And, and all of a sudden I'm like, dude, this is out of control. I'm like, and I've kind of, was trying to catch a middle one, like a mid-sized one, and I look out and I look to the staircase. I'm like, oh my God, the staircase is already to my left. I'm like, what am I going to do? I'm like, I've got to take one in. And again, I'm paddling. I'm like, I've got to try and take a mid. So I'm like paddling, 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 trying to get this mid-sized one and I miss it. And I turn around and 
there's bomb sets coming. And I'm like, oh, my God. So I paddle, paddle, paddling. I'm like, and you know, you've been in a situation where you're paddling and then you're shitting yourself and you yep. start laughing. You start yep. laughing out loud. It's too much. You don't much. know why you're laughing. Yeah, and I'm, I'm, I'm laughing because I'm with. nervous and I'm scared and I know I'm going to get the shit beaten out of me. And I start <laughs> giggling. And then I start giggling and then I can't paddle as fast because I'm giggling. And I just get onto the first one and then the second one, I get smashed. And by the time I get smashed, I am around the corner already from Winky, way down. And I come up and my board's smashed in half. Oh, your board's busted. My board's gone. It's gone in half. I'm like, what am I going to do? <laughs> so I thought, you know, and I didn't know. If I had known, if I'd spoken to someone, like, I would have taken like a boogie board, my surfboard, taken it to Juck and paddled in and just gone slowly onto the sand in Juck and then just come back. Somehow got a lift and come back. I did not know all this, you know what I mean? So I thought, I've got to get back somehow. I've got to get back somehow. So I'm paddling and I thought, okay, what if I just take one in or get to the rocks? And then I'm looking at the rocks. I thought, maybe I can walk around the rocks to the staircase. Yep. At the time, there was like two, three foot sets pounding on the rocks. You know what I mean? And at that time I had... um, I was stuck in the shore where the the surfboard was stuck and my rip, the leash was on me and the surfboard got stuck between rocks. So I had to rip off the leash, take the leash off and kind of hold on to the rocks a couple of times. And then I quickly got over the rocks between the sets and that happened to be, don't call it, a, it's a cave now, but it was a little kind of covering area where I, I just sat there and gathered myself because <laughs> my adrenaline had kicked in because I was, you know, Scared, scared and I just I, I hit the rocks a couple of times and I was scratched up where I just wanted to calm down a little bit and decide what I'm going to do because I didn't have my board anymore I'm scratched up I'm banged up I'm like how am I going to swim and during this time I had seen three guys drifting past me you know what I mean like I'm like I go shit I go I need to swim out and just drift I thought I saw three guys three or four guys do it I'm like that's what I need to do. And as I was trying to time my way of jumping over these two, three foot waves back onto rocks, I was just, okay, when is it? Should I do it now? And I, and I did that for like 15 minutes, like now, no, no, now, no. Like, and I was trying to look at, read the timing in to see when I had got a little break. And while I was doing that, I heard a noise and my busted board was like 10, 10 meters down. I thought, oh my God, my board's there. So I thought, if I could time it, how long do I have? Can I run along the rocks, grab it, run back and to the same spot where I am? And then at least <laughs> I've got something to, you know what I mean? Use it as a boogie board and drift. So all of a sudden I waited to come and then I start climbing my way, climbing my way, slipping, I'm slipping, climbing my way and I grab my board and I try and then I see the, the, the waves come in. So I ditch my board and I just hold on to this, hug this rock for dear life. You know, and then like I get smashed two, three times. I grab my board and I just make it back. And then it took me another 10 minutes to gather myself because I just got pounded again. And then I finally got out, drifted all the way down before Juck's till there was like a, a right before Juck, there was a staircase that you do before um, Point Addis or no, is it Point Addis? I can't remember what it is. Anyway, there's another wave there and I got up the staircase 
I'm, I'm clinching onto this board and I've, and it's, I've got fiberglass, like, cuts in my hand because I'm clinching onto it, like, taking one of the waves on the stomach. You know what I mean? And then all of a sudden, I'm walking up the staircase exhausted and I'm looking at this board. So I just throw the board over the edge, right? I'm walking away and this guy gives me a lift back to the parking spot where I jump in my car and I go straight to the first cafe in Torquay and I eat like 10 things, pancakes <laughs> I ordered, being, I ordered a smoothie, I ordered uh, water, you know, water, you name it. I just was like, <laughs> I was shaking, dehydrated, hungry. And I'm driving home and then I get these phone calls. My mum, close friend of mine, oh, what's going on? You've been lost. They sent, apparently there's a helicopter. You've been lost <laughs> at sea. They sent a helicopter for you. I'm like, I'm fine. I don't even want to talk about it. I'm driving home. I'm fine. And then the next day there was like three television crew in front of my mum's house. I'm like, are you guys kidding me? I'm like, dude, there's got to be something else going on in the world. Like, you know, I'm like, I'm, you know, I was lost. I feel Bruce was lost at sea. And then it just went. Now, now the stories, every time I watch Bells, I have to listen to it. And now apparently I'm, I was like living in this cave for three days and I've drawn, I've got like Aboriginal drawings in this cave and I've made a fire because, you know, so around the corner there's like, Scud's cave around the corner. I'm like, it's the story so out of control. Every time I've got to hear the same story and it's like, it gets bigger and bigger. But that's well, that's the whole story, man. You've cleared oh, it up. And I get a phone call from someone. Two weeks later, my surfboard ends up on the beach and then the guy that lived in Bells called me and I picked up my surfboard, um, <laughs> my broken in half, that he ended up finding out it was mine. And then it was, anyway... Well, you one, you've cleared it up for me, and two, I berated myself for not going out that day for three months. Now you I realise, man, there was room re- for two in that cave. <laughs> no, Howie, no. there was room stuff, for two in that Scott. cave, dude. I'm happy I didn't end up out there. We could have kept each other warm. I was freezing. <laughs> we could have, and then the story could have been even better. We blew it, man. Tennis ace and uh, small time Channel Ten reporter. It would have been in the day. Hey, oh man. One more, very quick, answer this very quickly for me, um, and then I'm going to speak Davis Cup with you. Where is the venue of the best wave you've ever caught? Oh, I mean, I caught so many amazing waves. I mean, uh, I would have to be, I would have to say, Lynn, I was living in San Diego for a very long time, nine years, and I've had such amazing fun sessions, like, by myself, you know what I mean? When you're kind of by yourself and it just turns on, I had just had some amazing sessions. Um, there's a place, little, uh, my local break was Seaside and then next to Seaside was um, George Joe's because there's a restaurant friend called George Joe's and I've just had some amazing surf there. Um, you know, I've gone to Mexico and had some fun ways. It all depends. Just I, I normally look at sessions, different sessions I've had mm-hmm. where that session sticks in my mind because it's just been so fun, Yeah. I've had um, had uh, Adam Scott, the golfer on this show, who loves to surf. Oh, he and loves he to casually, surf, yeah. He casually dropped in there that he'd been surfing with Kelly Slater at Pipeline. Have you been surfing with Kelly Slater? I've surfed with Kelly Slater a few times, but not at Pipeline. Not at Pipeline. We actually, they had um, a Trestles event, and during the Trestles event I was watching, they decided to have some kind of celebrity um, surf um, heat 
And I was there and then Kelly Slater, it was me, Kelly Slater, and there was another guy. So I was with Kelly Slater and I had trestles to myself when it was pumping. So that was pretty cool. Wow. That's a good story. Right up, Davis Cup. Uh when you played the Davis Cup, it was Nuke. I watched a clip the other day talking about my boys, they come off the court, they're going to have to have blood all over them. You know, he was the old-fashioned warrior. When I was a 17-year-old and just got into the squads and Roy Emerson was the number one player in the Australian team and he said to me, Blue, he said, he called everyone Blue. <laughs> he said, Blue, when you wear the Australian colours, if you come off losing, you better have blood all over you. 99 and 2003 Davis Cup. Yep. You played the what became the winning um, match in both those rubbers. Firstly, in France, you beat Cedric Pearlene in four in Nice to take the Davis Cup. I can remember watching it on clay. I can still picture the tracksuits. Standing between the green and gold and yet another trophy, this one, Roland Rhodes' sterling silver punch bowl, are the French, skippered by Guy Forget. Like, to me, this is Mark Philippoussis at his absolute best when he's giving his heart and soul in the green and gold. Like, I've actually got, um, I've got goosebumps thinking about it now, mate. That's, that's the ultimate you can give your country yeah. in your sport, I reckon. 100%. Like I said, the, the, as soon as you grow up playing tennis in Australia, the first thing you think about is wearing the green and gold. You know, I remember staying up. The one match that sticks out to me was the Davis Cup final, Australia versus Sweden, in, at Kuyong, Pat Cash was Cash. playing Pen Force down two sets to love and to come yep. back. That stuck, that thing sticks, you know, there's another one that stuck with me. And that's what you dream of. And, you know, we're playing France in Nice on clay. We're not expected to win. Um, leading up to it, man, I was, I wanted to be so perfect and ready that I'm not, I'm not lying where we got there two weeks early and the, the, 10 days early, the seven days before, I broke all my rackets because I can feel the tension. I, I wanted to be hitting the ball perfect, you know what I mean? Broke all my rackets, had to get new rackets sent. But like smacked them happened? on the ground, broke them. Oh, yeah, yeah, all gone, all gone. Broke, had to get new rackets sent. <laughs> um, agent had to fly in to bring him to me because so I can get there fast to make sure I got him. Uh, because I, you know, I, I was just feeling the tension, you know what I mean? Um, and... Um, and I got it out of the way. And then we moved to, we were practicing on an offsite. We moved to the main indoor. They built it, they put an indoor tennis court in this huge and built these stands. It must have been 17, 18,000 people in the stands. And it was indoors. So this noise was going nowhere, just so you know. And I remember going on for my first training session. We had three more days before it started, dude. And everything just clicked. Played practice sets. No one. I wasn't touched, just one, just all of a sudden and, and, and never said a peep. I took, I, I just took out all that frustration out. The anxiety was taken out. And then I walked, remember in that stadium and then it just clicked and I'm like, here we go. And never said a peep, never said a word. And then my tennis got better and better in each practice session. The second practice session, every practice match I was playing or sets wasn't touched. And so to the draw for this year's final in Nice. Sebastian Grosjean playing Mark Philippoussis. The first match you got in Grosjean to Pelin the final. I remember against Pelin, I was just so calm. You know what I mean? It was weird because when you're playing 18, then there must have been maybe, maybe we got five, oh, 
maybe 400 Australians came there. I don't know how big they came from everywhere. We were lucky to get it. Let's just say it was a thousand. It wasn't a thousand. Hopefully, they made, let's just say it was a thousand. And they were making some amazing noise for a thousand. There were 17,000 French. Hmm. It was just going crazy. The man they call Scott soon has his rockets served firing on all cylinders. And then what was happening too is on each side, there was someone, you know where those horns, did you hear those horns, pressing the horns? Yeah, yeah I was watching it this morning. So every time I would go to get a ball for my, for my serve, I would, someone reach over and go, oh, like right next to, <laughs> but I had blocked it. I was in a zone, you know, and, and I remember I just felt like it didn't matter. I, I, I couldn't hear, it was weird. I couldn't hear the crowd. I couldn't hear anything. Sometimes, you know, even on the corner side of the court, John was great, you know, and you always move, turn to your turn to your side and the teammates were going crazy. Tony Roach was there and everything and, um, you know, and I just remember just not hearing anything though, you know, and just knowing what I had to do and then just the words of, of it was, um, John Newcomb was very good in knowing what to say as being a, a, a one of the greatest to play the sports, understanding what to say in situations and knowing not to say too much. You know what I mean? There's a big difference between, I think less is more, especially I know what I had to do. You know, he gives the water, just keeping a positive, keep doing that. And he said to me, he goes, even when he won the set, he goes, if you keep playing, Peeling has never played this good. He cannot keep this up. There's no way he can keep this up. You know, he can't beat you. And I just, once, one point at a time, one point at a time. Philippoussis clinches victory for Australia in the first of the reverse singles the following day. The player and his captain, who had a very public falling out two years ago, are now united in triumph, signing off on an incredible year of success for Australian sport. Yeah, man, it was, uh, it was an incredible, incredible moment uh, as a team, what we'd gone through to share it with the team, to share it with the fans and supporters that, that were there and, and then what it meant to, you know, because you don't know until you see it what that means to Australia until you get back home, you know what I mean? Um, um, it, it was, uh, like I said, man, it was such a beautiful uh, moment because we, we, when you do, when you play Davis Cup, we're all such individuals. I was very much different to the other guys, that's for sure. But I think that's what makes a team great. You need individual people, different personalities to create a strong team. If you're all the same, it doesn't create a strong team, in my opinion. You need opposites in the team. But because when we came together, we came together strong. We knew what everyone's role was. We were very comfortable with each other. We we, we combined very well. Um, and, and um, you know, and it showed. Um on those few days. So as a small group of Australians in Nice, you've just won the Davis Cup, your first Davis Cup. In my head, I want to picture you all go out, I don't know if you still got your tracksuits on, and just sit down around and have a couple of beers and, and the cup's there. Like that, to me, that's how I want to picture it. What is a what is a Davis Cup celebration like as a small oh, group of individuals who have achieved something? How we, it wasn't like that. We went nuts. I, was oh, like, I went nuts. <laughs> There was no quiet beers. I'm sure if you look, there's a, you can find a photo from that night that I was celebrating. Um, I went nuts, man. There's no beers. It was shots. I'm not a beer drinker. 
Shots. Sam Booker. Shots, 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 shots. <laughs> and uh, and just waking up with the biggest hangover and the hangover couldn't have felt better. It was just, um, there, was, there was no downplaying that night. Are you kidding me? We just won the Davis Cup, man. I went nuts. I'm like, I love that you're a man that embraces life, whether it's surfing or big waves that are beyond you or drinking shots when you won a Davis Cup. So, right, 2003 now. Um, and you're playing at home. So this time it's the opposite. There's probably 100 Frenchmen there and you're yep. in your hometown. And yep. again, you have the opportunity to bring the Davis Cup back to Australia for another time. Are you two sets up? And then what, did you did you hurt a, a pec I'm or something? I'm two sets up and then I tear my pectoral muscle, which I didn't know at the time, but I knew something was wrong. This time there's no mistake. Philippoussis takes the second set, 6-3 in 41 minutes. Because, you know, my average serve is 120 miles an hour, 100, and uh, average serve in, in teens, one teens, 120-something miles an hour. And my first, second serve is almost 100, you know? And my first serve was lucky to get 100, and my second serve was like 78, it's never, you know, and any shot I hit the serve, especially any forehand, any volley, any backhand was a throbbing pain, just slowly got worse and worse and worse. Uh, during the break, he sat with John Fitzgerald, uh, gave him some sort of a tablet. Thank you. Lost the second set 6-3, uh, sorry, the third set 6-3, the fourth set 6-1. Two set points. Two set points to Spain. And there is the fourth set. Six games to two after 32 minutes to Spain. So you won the first two sets. Right. Home crowd on your favourite surface to potentially win the Davis Cup. Then you get injured. You lose the next two sets. What happens in the break between the fourth and the fifth set? And now as an athlete, what do you draw upon? What, what, what do you get out of yourself? I, number one, if it was anything else but Davis Cup, uh, I'm shaking hands. I mean, yeah. I know something's wrong. I'm shaking hands. There's something wrong. Uh, I didn't know what, but I, it's, it's painful. I couldn't just to hold my racket. And I, and, I, and I remember looking and, I, and I'm just in pain and, and um, our trainer came on and was rubbing me, which kind of made it worse because at the, it was a tear. I didn't know, but rubbing a tear, but he's like, do I loosen it up? He's like, what do I do? I'm like, I don't know. I, I can't, I'm, I'm in pain. I don't know. And let's uh, see, there's a massage oil being applied, which has probably got some uh, analgesic in it, some heat. And uh, if this is a strange shoulder, that would explain as the... Uh, the drop in serve, cream. perhaps? Yes, the drop in so the speed. Pace. And I remember looking up, looking back, and I just happened to look back and I see my dad is like, go to the... He yells, go to the bathroom. Just, you know, go to the bathroom. Break the momentum. I mean, do something. Just a little bit of massaging work for Juan Carlos. And I can tell you that... Uh, Mark Philippoussis has left the court with John Fitzgerald, with the team doctor. So I remember going to the bathroom, walking down the bathroom with my head, I'm like 
hanging. I mean, pain. Davis Cup final. The crowds were going nuts. I was winning amazing points, diving volley winners. All of a sudden, third set, fourth set, the crowd's like, well, you know, it's dead. It's like they can sense something's wrong. They're starting to freak out. So then, you know, and I freak out even more because, you you know, you're feeling the energy of the crowd. Oh, and oohs and ahs, you know. So I walk in the locker room. I open the door. What's the first thing I see in a, in a change room? Leighton warming up. He would have to go on if I lose. And I look at him and I go, what the F do you think you're doing? He looks at me and stops and goes, what? He goes, what are you? I said, I look at him and go, what are you warming up for? I'm going to win this match. You're not going to get to play. All right. He's like, all right, man. All right. He's like, no. And I go and I just go to the bathroom and I walk back and I'm walking back. I'm like, I don't know how I'm going to win this. I don't know how I'm going to win this. So I got in and I was like, okay, man, just... One, just one point at a time. I said to myself, one point. So I, fir- I served first. I got the first fall in. I volleyed. He missed a passing shot. 15 love. I was like, oh, crowd goes nuts. <laughs> Second one, I was like, I think double fault. Oh, first, third, 30, 30, 15. I was like, just win this first game, you know, just stop the bleeding, I thought, you know. And then 40, 30, a double, double fault. A little bit of a grimace from Mark there after completing that serve. 40 30, second serve, he hits an unbelievable backhand down the line, and I stretch, long stretching forehand, topspin volley cross court that just killed because I'm stretching it even more, and but an unbelievable. And I was like, oh, and the crowd goes nuts, and I'm like walking to my, you know, back. He gets over the line just in the opening game of this fifth set. And then I think it was John Fitzgerald. He's freaking out. He's trying to tell me. I can't even remember what John was telling me. I couldn't even hear anything. I was in so much pain. All I said to myself was, kept on saying just one point, just this point. And then the next point was like, just this point. Because everything I hit would hurt. And I said to myself, as soon as you can, just run to the net. Just chip and charge off anything. I don't care if it's a first serve because he was he saw I was hurt, saw something was wrong, and he was just getting the ball in. You know what I mean? So I thought, just come to the net. Just and then I ended up having come to net, and he was getting nervous. I would put the ball away. Then he missed a couple, hit some volley winners. All of a sudden, it's 30-40. And if he's going to get their Philippusis, it will be only just because he appears to be in deep trouble with that shoulder. But here he is now. Chipping it back. I'm coming in. I'm like, oh, just chipping it, getting it in, getting it in. It's like a 20-20 shot rally. And then I chip and charge on the forehand. It's all bluff coming in and he misses a passing shot. Game too low. Two saved, one remains. Thank you. Wait, please. Mighty big point. Oh, there it is. Australia gets the vital break in the fifth and deciding set. Crowd goes nuts. I don't even pump because I'm just, I just kind of slumped to the ground and straight away grabbed my racket with my left hand. As soon as the point was over, I was grabbing with my left hand to take any kind of pressure 
and then one point at a time, just hold, hold, stay onto that break, manage to stay onto that break, and then I break him for because he starts freaking out. And it's break point for Australia, a break point to affect a double break in this decider. And there it is, the double break goes to Mark Philippoussis and Australia. Now just two games away from wrapping up this tie and giving Australia its 28th Davis Cup victory. I break him, four love, now he's freak and I'll win, I, to this day I don't know, I win the last set six love. Australia has a new national hero. Incredible scenes on Rod Laver Arena. A hero in Nice in 99, a hero in Melbourne in 2003, Mark Philippoussis. Oh, I just collapsed to the ground. Um, just from pain, I was uh, relief that it's over. It was pain and just relief. Not the fact, oh my God, we just won the Davis Cup. Just like, oh my God, I don't have to play another point. You know, I just collapsed and and then just, you know, uh, to share that with everyone. But that energy, you know, oh my God, on that court that day, man, I'll never forget it. Never forget it. Um, it was amazing. You've won the Davis Cup in France and now you've won it here at home. How do you feel? Oh God, this is incredible. Um... You guys, if it wasn't for you guys, there's no way I would have got through that match. So thank you so much. Yeah, and, and then I, I, I just was in pain. I couldn't even hold up the trophy I was doing with my left hand. I couldn't even lift up my... And then I had an MRI the first thing in the morning and then I found out that I had a one and a half centimetre tear in my pectoral muscle. Huh. Um, they kept on tearing during the match. Um, but that, the first one, like you mentioned, was awesome, man. But it was earlier on, it was, you know, 1999. But this one, four years later, after going through certain things that I've gone through personally with the surgeries and then being at home, you know, playing at a home in front of Melbourne, my hometown, born and raised in Melbourne, and then doing it again. Um, yeah, that was more special. That was more special. That's one of the, we're over 100 episodes in. I've talked to a lot of people about a lot of famous moments. That's one of the best descriptions I've heard on the show. So thank you for taking oh, us back no there. Worries, man. Mate, when you've got the torn peck and you've given it all for your country, are you on the Zambukas again that night or do you have to be more low-key? That night was huge. Come on. <laughs> huge. I did not sleep at all that night. I didn't sleep. I stayed up all night and then we went to the Puerto Parade the next day and I was numb by the Zambuka. made me numb. Huge. Yeah. That was even bigger. At home in Melbourne, we found like a little bar that was open in Nice that was still opened that we went nuts. This was our hometown. Are you kidding me? My family, my friends were there. Oh, way bigger. More of Mark in a tick. Tennis fans, check out the back catalogue. The entertaining Pat Cash is a star in episode 45. Sam Groth tells us what life is really like on tour in episode 43. But episode 44 features one of the most courageous people we have ever featured on the podcast, Yelena Dockage. Um, very often I would go you know, out there on the court, even later when I my, my ranking dropped, maybe I was 100 in the world. But people don't realise I was going out there with all of these problems. 
and winning, you know, a match maybe on the challenger level was such a big accomplishment. And it's hard to explain that to people on, you know, such an individual sport and a tough tour like that. But for me, those were, you know, accomplishments because there was so much going on still in my private life that I, again, talk about and everything that he was putting me through. I mean, I'm not sure which player in the world, if ever, has had to have security guards to protect them against their father, you know, threatening to come and kill everybody. So I think that in itself, going out on the court is an accomplishment. That is the incredibly strong woman that is Yelena Dockage on episode 44. Okay, back to Flip. <laughs> Mate, you've been really, um, as well as being really entertaining, you've been really reflective in this chat. And, and I'll, I'll get out of your hair soon. But you, you seem really happy to talk about lessons along the way. It, it gets to the early 2000s and then mid. And then I think it's, I, I read an article in, in the newspaper and it was 2009, and you were talking about, we don't need to go into specifics of it, but it was talking about that you'd lost a lot of money. Now, now you've framed this discussion earlier on as a young bloke having everything you need, and the article's talking about the fact that you, you basically don't have anything left in the bank. What is it like to go from the very top to the very bottom in that sense? Uh, look, that was that was a, that uh, an interview that was, that very rarely do I, do, do I say I regret things. I regret that interview because I was very much taken advantage of a moment where I tried to do the right, and and they it was blown out of proportion. Do you want um, to not talk about to it? Look, no, no, I don't mind at all. But I'm just telling you the okay. the, the, the what it was. Um, it, back at the time, I forgot what it was. It was nothing. or something I was waiting to come in, and I missed one payment of my house of in my life, and then someone had put paperwork that I missed payment and all of a sudden I get phone calls saying that we heard you missed the payment. If you don't do an interview with us, we're going to write whatever we want or you have a chance to talk to us. Really? So I was like, why? And then all of a sudden that scared me. You know what I mean? I just, and I, it upset me now that I allowed them to get to me because I never let them get to me. Well, they did get to me, but I never showed it by giving them an interview because I never did that. So it was very aggressive on the phone where I was like, hang on a second, why would you say, because that's not true, why would you say that? Well, yeah, things were tough, but not like, you know what I mean, what you're um, going through tough stages, but it's a lot to do. It's more mental than anything going through what I was going through with having surgeries, not being able to tennis, my tennis career being over, is I was depressed mentally because, you know, since you're six years old, you're doing one thing and all of a sudden that's over it's not like, oh, I'm just going to move on. You know what I mean? It's over. It's a big part of your life. So I did that interview and it was taken. And of course, they found the most worst picture and they made it look like I was going to jump off a cliff. You know what I mean? So in a small in a small way, that was certain things were right, but, but not to nowhere near. That was times 30 exaggerated, taken out of con- context. And way exaggerated, and because it, it 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 was great to it was you know that's what sells. Let's be honest, you know what I mean. So, but uh, but yeah, I was going through. But at this, by saying that, it wasn't an easy time. It was more, um, it was more mental at that stage than anything. Um, more mental because from a young age, like I said, I I was never about money or I was never money hungry or made decisions based on money ever because I've said low, no to a lot of things and still do. And, and I knew that money doesn't make you happy. 
Um, so it, this, what I was going through was a mental, it was a thing for me um, that was very difficult that I was finding challenges um, whether I wasn't in a financial position that I was before normally, yes, but it still wasn't, di- you know what I mean? Um, knock on wood. I was in a house with my family, you know what I mean? With a house, it, it, I wasn't on the streets. I wasn't, I was still incredibly blessed and, and, and so much luckier than and 90% of the world. So it was completely put out of context and blown to unfortunately, you know, uh, that's what sells. But I was struggling um, mentally in, in, a, in a tough place. I was struggling. I'll reframe that question, mate, because there's no need for that to be in there. I mentioned to you. No, no. No, it's okay. No, no, no. No, it's good to say it because it is what it is and it's the truth. So I got to say, I never talked about it, but that's what what happens. You can have it in there. There's nothing bad. In in respect to that then, you you mentioned trying to retire from the game. You mentioned earlier on before the Wimbledon final when you'd spent a period in a wheelchair and you'd been told you weren't going to be able to play again it's so good flip because people talk about it now and when athletes talk about it, I think people look up to them and think, wow, if Lisa Jones had that problem and dealt with it, wow, and she's got all this, you know, I can work my way through it. What, what have you learnt along your journey in those more difficult times about mental health? Oh, my God, that it's everything. It's the most important thing. I mean, you know, it, it doesn't take long to start thinking negatively and it's like cancer. You, you have one negative thought and, and it's cancer, it spreads spreads to one thing, it spreads to everything uh, very quickly. So when you are going through something, and I was going through something very difficult for me, you see, what was difficult too, you have to understand is, I have no problem something ending. There's a difference between being in a position to say, it was been awesome, I've had a good run, but I'm ready to leave this behind. And then another difference to saying where it's taken out of your hands and that something that you've been doing for a long time and sometimes unfortunately, take for granted, you know what I mean? Easy to take for granted, has taken away whether you like it or not. And even if you are more in a better place mentally and mentally stronger and knowing what you, you know, that you can work harder to come back, but your body says, I don't care how mentally strong you are or what you're ready to do, I'm sorry, but you can't no longer do it, especially on a level where if you do come back, that's the only thing you're thinking about doing or else what's the point? You know what Mm. I mean? Mm. There's a difference between that. Difference between walking away and saying, I'm done, man, this has been awesome, then then it being taken away from you. And it was taken away from me. And I re- I stopped at 29, you know, it's very young. I was 29 years of age. I missed out on a lot of years. Even during that 29, I missed out probably two years from surgery and injuries as well. So when you think about it, I had probably uh, eight years on the tour, seven, almost seven years on the tour. You know what I mean? Um, so looked like a, lo- a long time, but then it wasn't a long time because I started so young, you know? So that's what was tough. Um, and then accepting that um, and being okay with that because then you start looking at it and like, man, I screwed up. Look, look, it's been taken away, but if only. Then you start looking at that if only and what if, and then what if things start going to your mind and then you torture yourself even more because that's the last thing, you you know, what's the point? You know what I mean? Um, and that's what made it difficult. Um, and then when you are, you know, when I was going through it, I remember, and this is honest truth, I did not leave my bedroom. And remember, during that time too, I had my sixth knee surgery, 
where I had to be in the wheelchair because it was a microfracture surgery. So I was non-weight bearing. I was in my bed for three months, okay? Um, and I didn't leave my room. Everything was in my room. My mum brought breakfast, lunch, and dinner to my room. I never left the shades from my room. I would sleep during the day, watch movies at night, and then crutches, go to the bathroom, come back for literally a couple of months, at least a couple of months, two, three months like that. And then when I could finally walk, I, the shade came up and, I'm, and I said, and I, and I didn't need crutches. I said, let's just, just take the dogs for a walk. Just go outside. And all of a sudden, a 15 minute walk, the sun was out. It was blue skies. It was in front of the water. And I said, you know what? Okay. It's going to be okay. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's like, you realize you open those curtains, you get out of the room. It's like, okay, it's going to be okay. And no matter what I decide to go forward doing, I know I'm going to be successful at it. You know what I mean? It's like, okay, I did it at tennis. No matter what I decide with something else, I'm going to do the same thing and I'm going to be successful with it as well. And then uh, that 20 minute walk became 30. It wasn't thinking like that at the start. It was like, let's just go for a walk, man. Mum's like, just mum's dad, just go out for a walk. Just get out. It's a beautiful day. And a, a nice walk, all of a sudden, a couple of positive things came in mind instead of all negativity and all um, things that I regretted and all these things happened. And all of a sudden, something positive came in. And then one thing positive, another thing positive. And then next day was 20 minutes. And then the next day was 30 minutes. And then more positive things came in mind. And then I was calling my friend. And then I was seeing my, a friend of mine. You know what I mean? And then it was a slow process of getting back to a positive mental place. I'm happy to hear that. It's an interesting flip. It's an interesting sport, tennis, because so many people, like you look at Agassi and you read his book and it was like he, you know, he, he had a constant battle with the game and, you know, there's been so many fallen heroes in tennis. What's your relationship with tennis now? If you look at, if I say to you, you know, what do you think about tennis now? Like what pops into your head? Oh, g- grateful. Grateful for the life it gave me. Grateful for everything I was able to um, achieve, um, the friendships, the people have come in my life because of tennis, beautiful, and they're still in my life. My my wife meeting, not through tennis, but because of tennis, if I wasn't there, I kind of wouldn't have met it as well and certain things happening where it's like a butterfly effect where I actually I wouldn't have met her. Um, experiences, I mean, it's given me everything, you know? My, my, the tennis has given me everything and I look at it as a gift. Um, of course, my gosh, there's been times where I looked at it where I fell out in love with tennis and I couldn't stand it. The last thing I want to do is pick up a racket. Now, I'm, you got to say, I'm the personality where when I stopped playing, when I was, tennis was done or that tournament was done, I didn't think about picking up a racket. Even now, I'll be honest, I don't, I only go on the court to hit with my son. Um, I don't think about getting on the court to practice. I couldn't care less unless someone would hit, hey, do you want to hit some balls? Sometimes, like, you know, someone would say, uh, I jump on the court. For instance, Kokonakis will say, hey, I get on the court, Kokonakis hit the balls. I enjoyed hitting. When I'm there, I actually enjoy it. But the last thing I do is think about waking up and going, oh, I'd like to hit some balls today. You know what I mean? That's the last thing I want to do. Or <laughs> I hardly watch on, on TV any tennis, to be honest with you. But love the sport still. Whatever my son decides to do, he plays soccer, he plays basketball, he plays tennis, um, baseball, he loves his soccer. But he also said, if he wants to become a tennis player, I'll support him in every way I can. 
because I think tennis is an amazing sport, but also it's a very difficult sport because you're alone. You know, there's no one to lean against. You have your team, but at the end of the day, you're alone. And that's the other thing I love about it. So, um, but I, I, I think tennis is one of the best sports in the world, without a doubt. Um, it's very similar to, to, to life, actually, when you look at it. And as a dad of, is it Nicholas? Nicholas, yeah, and Maya. At this stage, and, and hopefully with your daughter as well, what's it like to just walk out on a tennis court with your young fella and have a hit of tennis? It's beautiful because hmm. um, I'll tell you, it was funny. He he started hitting the ball, you know, when he was three years old, even a couple, you know, but but I never push, I never go on the court until he says, Daddy, let's go play tennis. I wait for that. If he says, Daddy, let's go play tennis, let's go. Um, and in the past, I got him a racket and then only a few months ago, only a few months ago, he started listening. I might hit with him twice a month. Maybe that's it for 20 minutes. It's like he's got... 15 minutes maybe in, in his focus thing and then it's like he, it's off and then do something else. Um, and maybe two months ago he started listening. Before he just wanted to play points and play games and play points. I couldn't feed balls where he'd listen, you know. And um, so he would listen. And the first time listening, he's racket back, finishing the ball. Like he pick, it's scary how he does it straight away. As soon as I say something to him, he does it straight away. And he started listening for the first time and then his forehand was like racket back early. He wrapped it, finished it. What? What a shot. Good job, Nicholas. And I swear to God, I was was videotaping it and a tick came to my eye because I laughed and I was like, oh my God. Because what happened was I had a proper um, rally with him. I hit the ball and he rallied back. We had like a... 10 shot rally and I thought it just hit me it was like I'm rallying with my son you know what I mean and he's and he's he's six years old um I was video I had you know phone in one hand and and a tear came my eye I was just smiling and it was one of the most it's you know you can understand what I'm saying just one of the weirdest proudest most beautiful moments I've ever experienced I couldn't care less if he becomes a professional tennis player don't get me wrong it's just that I'm hitting having a rally with my son and I'm actually not even babying the ball back. I'm hitting it and he's, you know what I mean? It was just uh, an incredible, um, that's just a beautiful moment, you know? It's made me smile. So last question, and this has been, it's been a fascinating chat, mate. People are going to love this. I've loved it. It's, it's made my week. We're talking about kids. I always finish this way. And you come from a position where you've lived a life and a half. If there's kids, we're lucky. Mm-hmm. Flip that a lot of kids listen with their parents and they want to achieve things in life, whether it be on tennis or cricket or playing the guitar or being the best in their class at science or maths or writing a book. They just want to achieve something in the field they're passionate about. Often the hardest question of all is what advice would you give to those youngsters listening from your experiences? Um, it's very simple. I, I just I said to my son, I said, whatever you want to do um, and you do it that it makes you happy, and I just said that there's no shortcuts um, and there's only way of, one way of doing it and it's hard work. No matter what you want to achieve, you want to become a businessman, you want to start a company, you want to become an athlete, you want to become a singer, an actor, no problem, I'm here to support you or I would tell that kid. But just one thing is there's, no, there's nothing except hustle and working hard and putting in your hours. That's it. And um, nothing can compensate for that. 
no matter what you want to do, unfortunately, you're going to have to work harder than everyone else. While they're sleeping, you need to work. You know, while they're playing around, going to a party, you need to be working. And the beautiful thing about that is if you work hard enough and you believe and you do that, even if someone wants to stop you, they can't stop you. That's the beautiful thing. You know, the, the, the odds, that's what I did. My dad, the odds of me, some young kid, um, I'll say it, some wog growing up in the Western suburbs of Footscray, has a, a seven-year-old has a dream of becoming a professional tennis player. The odds of me being one of the best in Australia is one thing. Being one of the best in the world as a junior, literally making it on the pro tour and then one day looking back and saying, looking back and saying that I got to eight in the world, lost to two Grand Slam finals, won two Davis Cups for my country, winning 11 titles. You know, do I have any regrets? Zero. And then my, my, my career finishing at 29 years of age, no problem. You know, if someone came to me and said, hey, you can, you'll have to finish your, your career at 29, but this is what you will achieve. Do you, will you take the deal and like sign me up, man? You know what I mean? So I would just say hard work. If you want it and you really want it bad enough, um, there's going to be days you're going to wake up and you're not always going to feel like doing what you have to do. And that's more often than the fact that you feel like doing it. And the difference between the guys that make it, the guys and girls, the people that make it successful are the ones that on the days they do not feel like doing it, they get up and they actually do it. And that is more rewarding the days they do feel like doing it. So if you could get off the couch and do something and put in that time on the days that you feel like you really can't today, that's the ones that really matter in the future. And if you keep doing that, no one can stop you, even if they want to. You've used the word beautiful a few times in this, and I think this has been a beautiful episode, not a word that two men usually <laughs> that don't know each other very well use, but, mate, I couldn't be more thankful of the depth of your passion and emotion and honesty and openness. It's a fantastic episode with so many highs and lows. I don't normally ask this, but what's it been like to reflect for you? Yeah, I think all I was going to say to that is I think it comes down to when you are in a good place that there's no there's no right or wrong. There's nothing wrong with talking about the past or definitely if the hard times because that's what made me stronger, made me better, the person that I want to be and I'm still trying to be better every day. I'm still trying to better myself, of course, as uh, a guy, a human being, or a husband for sure, definitely a father and everything. So, but I feel like because I'm in a good place, when I'm in a good place, I'm comfortable talking about anything. If there's something I do not want to talk about, I'll just say, hey, you know, I'm not, I'm not interested in talking about that. I'm not going to talk about it. But I think when you get in the, if you, when you get in the right place, if you're in a good place, there shouldn't be something up, something, uh, there are definitely things that are off limits, of course, but I think people are very happy to talk about things if they're in the good place. You know, if you're struggling with something, it's hard to open up and talking about something if you're still struggling with it, although that's the best thing that you could do. So uh, I just think the fact that I can, um, and uh, first of all, uh, thanks for having me. I've really enjoyed and it's it's flown by. It's been like two hours, it's flown by, but yes. um, that it's it's nice just to have a conversation because it's not, you're not getting interviewed. It's a conversation that two guys are having that, that happen to be, you know, that's getting taped and that's great. And if I in some way could help, because um, every time I finish something, especially this, you know, I feel good and I feel like I've learned something 
something else and I feel better about myself or I feel like I know I'm in a good place or I know I'm on the right path. You know what I mean? Um, and if, my God, if I could, if something, one thing that has said that might help somebody that's in a, a tough situation or going through something hard, um, that's that's amazing. And I'm grateful about that. But I think that, as you said, one thing people have to understand, um, human beings, you're a human being, you're going to struggle, something is going to happen, you're going to hurt, you're going to cry. And life is not, you know, can't be perfect. And if it is perfect, that would be boring and you wouldn't appreciate when something happens because good things are always happening. You know what I mean? And one thing people have to understand, if they look up to an athlete or a celebrity or an actress, you call them what you want. At the end of the day, it's another human being that happens to be doing something that you look up to and you want to do, great. But my God, everyone in their lives and their personal lives are struggling in some way or going through something or had to overcome something. And they're no different than anyone else, whether they play a sport or do something else. So, you know, I, I, I find inspiration in everything, man. You know, from every from from things, everything, every day, you know, and, and the silliest little things on YouTube that someone records, I found, I, I smile at and it's so beautiful. And, and, you know, and then when you think you're struggling, get on YouTube and look at kids are going through certain things that are struggling. Uh, then you just feel like an, an idiot when you're upset about something. Really? I'm upset about this? Like, I mean, are you kidding me? You, then you start getting embarrassed. Like, oh my God, at the end of the day, you're blessed. Mm. Whatever it is you're struggling about, um, it's nothing compared to what's really out there. And so I think that's what it comes down to is, is getting in a place where you realize that, that look, it's not the end of the world. And not only, and, and I know I'm going to get back, I only get back stronger than ever because of this right now is going to make me stronger than ever. And then, you know, whether you're a businessman here, this guy lost everything. He was worth 200 million, lost everything, lost three businesses. Now the guy's worth $4 billion and he's worth $4 billion because his previous three businesses have failed. Now, you know what I mean? It's like there's a reason that he's worth that. It's about getting up. And unfortunately, sometimes that it's easier just to stay down and stay on the couch and, and, and play the blame game and, and be angry. And that could have happened for me if I didn't get out of that room, you know, but and didn't take the dogs for a walk. And that, that walk led to a longer walk and that led to calling a friend for a coffee. And that led, you know what I'm saying? So I think that's what it comes down to. If I had to say one thing and leave... Um, our talk with one thing is is uh, is you know, things are tough, but they can always be tougher, and you can always find your way back. and 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 you're gonna and and we'll blink, and, and it's ten years from now. You know what I mean? Like we're blinking, and our kids are growing up so fast. So if you just stay on that trail, and you blink, in five years time, man, you're gonna be in an amazing position, and you're glad you made that first first uh, step. You know, five years ago. You know, you have made. My day. It's been fantastic to chat with you, mate. Thanks, it's given me a real lift today. And uh, hopefully next time when the world is back to normal and Winky is under six foot, we can paddle out there and not get stuck in a cave. Great mess. Yeah, right. We can paddle. I can point that cave out to you. I can paddle and show you my drawings. <laughs> <laughs> You're a star. Thanks for joining me on the Howie Games Flip. Howie, thank you, man. My pleasure. There is a man for mine that has a wonderful, wonderful perspective on life and what a life he has lived. Mark Philippoussis is a star. Thank you so much to him for coming on the show and telling some fantastic stories. And may he have so much more happiness come his way. Thanks to Darcy Thompson, as always, who has been under the pump getting the new content out. 
the player profile and our new baby, the Howie Games Hotline. Please have a listen if you've got some time. Report back what you think of it all. League star Valentine Holmes' player profile is up next Thursday, then Val's full app the following Thursday, September 24. Until then, peace and love. And we can do it if we try, try, try. If we try, try, try If we try, try, try Listener